Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So have you heard of this experiment from Albany Medical College where they tried to figure out whether rats like jazz or classical music more? I don't know. I haven't heard about this. This seems like a really important experiment. And, and actually, I have to admit, I, I am curious. So, so, so which one do they like more? So the scientists played Fur Elise on loop for 90 minutes, and then they'd switch to Miles Davis and his song Four. So they just go from four to Fur Elise to four. And of course, they discovered that the rats liked silence better than continuous music. <laughs> but when they had to choose, the rats liked Beethoven more than hard bop. And I guess that makes sense. If we're talking about on repeat and they're having to hear this over and over, I guess it's a, a little more soothing, right? Yeah, but the experimenters weren't done then. So I have no idea why they did this. They injected the rats with cocaine after this for seven straight days. And <sighs> once the rats had this cocaine just racing through their system, they couldn't get enough Miles Davis. <laughs> <laughs> Which apparently, also makes sense. Apparently, science tells us that coked-up rats really love jazz. Wow. But uh, there's a whole world of questionable science experiments, from the weird to the funny to the seriously ill-advised, and that's what today's show is all about. Let's dig in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikater. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, putting his good name on the line for the sake of science, mm-hmm. conducting what is, we assume, the first ever scientific attempt to bring a potato back to life. <laughs> That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. A potato back to life, Mango. This is big science. I saw the potatoes. I saw the lab coat. I had no idea what was going on there. <laughs> I, I think that's what the defibrillator is for. And you might be wondering how you can tell the difference between a live and a dead potato. Well, those uh-huh. are all heavy questions. And hopefully Tristan's work will help shed some light on just a few of those. It, it may be too over our heads. We'll see. Most of what Tristan does is. But, 
Anyway, I know this experiment sounds ridiculous, but honestly, everything on today's show sounds a little ridiculous. So we'll dig into some of the weirdest, most questionable science experiments in history. Namango, I know for a while as a kid, you wanted to be a scientist, and I've heard you talk about some of the experiments you conducted. So did you come up with any terrible experiments along the way? Oh, so many. I mean, you know, my dad's a scientist, and he's a good one. So we test things, and I tell him about inventions or ideas for inventions I had. Like, uh, I, I had an idea for a de-microwave, and the whole idea was <laughs> that, like, you could cool down a hot bagel fast. And oh, then, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, he tell me, like, why it would or wouldn't work or what I'd have to think about. But I think the biggest failure I had as a kid was uh, in second grade. And my friends and I were at the bus stop, and we always wanted a day off from school, you know, especially when the weather was nice because you want to stay home and play and whatever. So I hatched this amazing scheme. Like our our friend Kristen had access to a ton of gum for some reason, and I, I knew that gum on the ground is sticky when you step on it. And I don't remember how we calculated this out, but there were drawings and some terrible math involved. But we figured that... If we could get a big enough wad of sticky gum in the right place, the school bus tire would probably stick to it and get stuck there for the day, and we wouldn't have to go to school. I really want to hear that this worked, but I'm going to guess that maybe this didn't work. (laughs) Yeah, of course not. I mean, my my calculations were off, I guess. and uh, But the plan was, like, so elaborate. We we planned about it. We talked about it. We made this giant wad of gum, and then we uh, placed it in what we thought was going to be the perfect spot. And then the school bus tire didn't even roll over it. So it was like super anticlimactic. And we sort of like deflatedly walked onto the school bus. But uh, now that I think about it, the gum was also carefree. So it wasn't really like a sticky type of gum. Oh, that was your problem because carefree was, it's sugarless, right? Yeah, but I mean, you go to war with the gum you have, and it was not a great day for science. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, today's show is all about odd science experiments, and just because they're bizarre doesn't mean we should automatically discount them. In fact, I was reading this article by Alex Bose, and he wrote a great book about odd science experiments. And there's a section where Alex explains why he first got into weird projects and and why he believes they should still be thought of as worthwhile. So I just want to read a bit from this. So here's what he says. I confess I had no profound intellectual motive at first. I simply found them fascinating. They filled me with disbelief, astonishment, disgust, and best of all, laughter. But with hindsight, perhaps there is a deeper message. These experiments are not the work of cranks. All were performed by honest, hardworking scientists who were not prepared to accept a common-sense explanation of how the world works. Sometimes such single-mindedness leads to brilliant discoveries. At other times, it can end up closer to madness. Unfortunately, there's no way of knowing in advance where the journey will lead. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something to keep in mind as we go along. But while it might be true that none of the people that Alex talked about were crackpots, some of the ones I want to talk about definitely were. (laughs) So (laughs) this includes the first guy we've got on the list, a Renaissance-era physician and alchemist named Paracelsus. Now, Paracelsus is known for doing some of the earliest research in toxicology and also psychotherapy, which are, I guess, both weird in their own right. But without doubt, his strongest claim to fame was his account of how to grow your own homunculus. To grow your own homunculus, Mango. (laughs) You too can grow your own. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to confess I'm a little rusty on my pseudoscience lingo from what you said, the 1500s, is Uh that right? So so what exactly is a homunculus? It's a mythological creature. Apparently Paracelsus Uh, believed in all sorts of those, including giants and wood nymphs. But uh, (laughs) homunculus was basically like a tiny living human the size of a doll or something. And Paracelsus actually claimed to have made his own, which he said was about a foot tall. Right. And you said this man was a doctor, right? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it was easier to get into medical school back then. Oh, you think so? (laughs) (laughs) Some people thought he was a medical genius. uh, Others thought he was more of this loudmouth drunk type. I'm guessing the truth was somewhere in between. But these were actually the instructions Paracelsus has laid out to create your own little homunculus. So uh, here we go. Let the seed of a man by itself be putrefied in a gourd glass and sealed up in horse dung for the space of 40 days until so long as it begins to be alive, move and stir. After this time, it'll be something like a man, yet transparent and without a body. Now, after this, if it be every day warily and prudently nourished and fed with man's blood and be kept for the space of 40 weeks in a constant equal heat of horse dung, it'll become a true and living infant. (laughs) You know what? Just hearing this, it kind of makes me want to go back and watch those old SNL skits where Steve Martin played the medieval barber because it sounds like pretty (laughs) similar advice. And, uh, you know, I admire Paracelsus' ingenuity. And obviously, at the time, they had a much different set of knowledge, but I feel like it might be smarter for the human race to stick with the, you know, the old-fashioned horse dung-free way to make a true and living infant. But <laughs> anyway, you know, word of crazy experiments like this and these medical fallacies, they, they, they got passed around a lot during the Middle Ages and even into the Renaissance. So much so, in fact, that a physician philosopher named Sir Thomas Brown actually put together a massive list of these widely believed tall tales, and he referred to these as vulgar errors. So Brown would go around testing all these absurd claims in order to disprove them once and for all. So, for example, one weird idea that had spread in the 1600s was that you could make an accurate weather vane just by hanging a dead kingfisher bird from a string. It's as simple as that. (laughs) I I love arts and crafts projects. I'm guessing that didn't end well, though. Well, apparently he found himself a dead kingfisher one day, and he hung it up from a beam outside. And much to his dismay, the bird just sort of dangled and seemed to sway at random, you know, as you'd expect from a corpse of a dead bird. (laughs) But, you know, being this man of science, Brown knew he couldn't definitively disprove this claim with just a single dead kingfisher. So he got another one, strung it up next to the first, and watched as both birds spun aimlessly in different directions. So with that, with that degree of science, Mango, Brown was able to say conclusively that dead kingfishers are a poor way to determine wind direction. So forget trying this. It's just not going to (laughs) work. I do like that it took uh, just two dead birds to put a stop to this idea, but... You know, no one else had thought of this. And, and I, I feel sorry for, like, whatever poor salesman at the market had stocked up on baskets of kingfishers. And I guess, like, Brown just ruined his entire business model. Yeah, but, it's all uh, gone there. And other interesting uh, cat I came across was this guy named uh, Johann Conrad Dippel. And he was this German scientist in the late 1600s who'd actually been born in the real castle Frankenstein, which is kind of amazing. And, of course, he had a lot of ideas. Probably his least bizarre achievement was that he developed one of the world's uh, first synthetic pigments. In fact, the first. It's a dye called Prussian blue that's still in use today. Yeah, I've heard of Prussian blue, but I I think you said least bizarre achievement. So what was his most bizarre achievement? Yeah, I I did because I I wanted to talk about Dipple's oil. It was supposed to be kind of a life-extending potion, but was in reality just this like terrible, disgusting slurry made from a mix of random animal bones and hides. Oh, that's too bad. I'm curious, though, <laughs> did, did he sell a lot of Dipple's oil? I imagine it must have been a big hit with the, the local villagers there. Yeah, you'd think so, but not so much. In fact, Dipple was eventually run out of town because of all these rumors that started circulating about what he was really doing in his lab. 
Like, one of the rumors claimed that Dipple was a grave robber and that he'd once tried to move a soul from one corpse to another using just a funnel, a hose, and a bit of lubricant. <laughs> you need the lubricant to get it through, but uh, yeah. I, I think we can both agree that's a, a bit of a suspect science there. I mean, I guess so. I could see where they were going with that, but but I do see what you mean about him being a mad scientist. All right, but if you don't mind, I, I kind of want to transition away from the total crackpots and start talking about some of the scientists who were maybe, I don't know, just a little misguided instead. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, I think I have the perfect person to help us make that leap because he really does toe this line between those two types, and his name was Stubbins Firth. Isn't that a great name? He just seems mm-hmm. like somebody that would toe those lines. Old but, Stubbins. Old Stubbins. <laughs> but in the early 19th century, he was training to be a doctor in Philadelphia. And so during this time, Stubbins began studying the effects of yellow fever, and that was, of course, a disease that had laid waste to the area's population just a few years before this. And he had noticed that the fever hardest hit in the summer months, and then it would disappear almost entirely by wintertime. And so this led him to the conclusion that all these widely held opinions about yellow fever being contagious were completely false. So to him, it seemed much more likely that yellow fever was brought on by excessive heat and food and noise and All of these things were much more abundant in the summer than they were in the winter. I I like the idea of just a lot of noise causing yellow fever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It it does sound like this guy's heart was in the right place. Like, I, I know this doesn't feel like a sound theory, but what goes on from here? Well, this is where Stubbins needed proof on this. So so the doctor in training began a series of self-experiments to show that no matter how often he was exposed to yellow fever, he would never catch it. And not being the kind of guy to do anything halfway, Stubbins decided that his best chance to ensure he was properly exposed to the disease was to use, and this was the quote from this notebook, fresh black vomit from yellow fever patients. (laughs) So this is already disgusting, and I'm pretty grossed out. But I I do have to ask, like, what do you mean by he used it? He used it how? Well, in all sorts of ways, and this actually gets even more disgusting, but here are the ways. So first he tried to make small cuts on his arms, and then he would pour some of this vomit into his wounds. Uh Next, he dabbed some (laughs) of the mess directly into his eyes. Uh Then he heated some in a skillet and inhaled the fumes. And then lastly, as if those things weren't gross enough, he just (laughs) went for it. And I'm not joking. I think you saw this coming. He just chugged some of the stuff, which (gasps) makes me feel sick just hearing this, but... (laughs) I mean, Stubbins never got sick, which, of course, and I don't know how he would know that he didn't get sick because I can't imagine doing any of these things and not vomiting yourself. But he took this all as proof for his theory. So I I don't understand how any of that's possible. Like, I I thought yellow fever was contagious. Oh, it definitely is. I mean, it's highly contagious. But as we know, the disease needs to come into direct contact with the bloodstream in order to cause that infection. And that's likely why Stubbins observed so many more cases of yellow fever in the summer. There were just more mosquitoes around to spread the disease. So I I get that. But why didn't Stubbins get sick when he was cutting himself and, you know, like exposing that stuff to his cuts? And I mean, that, that had to get in his bloodstream, right? Well, normally, yes. But as it turned out in this case, most of the patients whose samples he used were in the late stages of yellow fever. And by that point, they were actually no longer contagious, though Of course, you know, Stubbins didn't know this. Well, I mean, I'd say we're firmly in the realm of misguided experiments after that one. So I'm actually going to keep the ball rolling with what I hope will be something of a palate cleanser. And this is this crazy study I found out about uh, mating instincts of turkeys. I like how you're calling mating instincts of turkeys a uh, a palate cleanser, but but, (laughs) but tell me more here. 
Yeah, it's a turkey amuse-bouche. So uh, (laughs) wild turkeys are notoriously difficult to hunt, which is why human hunters often resort to these lifelike decoy models of female turkeys. They use these to lure the bigger male birds to them. And the males don't seem to mind or even notice the difference for the most part. They're actually perfectly content to mate with these phony birds. And that behavior is actually what caught the attention of these two researchers at the University of Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. So we're, we're back in Pennsylvania again. Yeah, it's a hotbed of science. But (laughs) anyway, these guys at UPenn started wondering what was the minimal stimulus for exciting a turkey. And so to figure that out, they decided to gradually remove parts from a decoy turkey until the male inevitably lost interest. So first they removed the tail and the tail feathers and then the feet and lastly the wings. But Despite all of these missing appendages, the males were still eager to mate with the decoy. I mean, I I guess they just love the personality. And uh, (laughs) eventually the researchers were down to just a head on a stick. And the strangest part is that the male turkeys were still interested. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. (laughs) I, I, I have to admit, I feel slightly scandalized and more than a little concerned about what the good people of Pennsylvania are doing with their time, uh, all in the name of science, I guess. But all right, well, since you opened the seal on weird animal studies, there's one I've been dying to tell you about. Absolutely. But first, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about some of the strangest experiments in the history of science. Now, for better or worse, many of the weirdest projects do tend to involve animal test subjects. But rather than focusing on the more upsetting ones where animals come to harm, I instead want to tell you the story of a young boy and his adopted chimpanzee sister. And yes, (laughs) I said it, his adopted sister. Now, probably the most troubling aspect of this one is that the boy's father decided to carry out his experiment using his own son. But don't worry, before I tell you about this, the boy makes it through unharmed or at least more or less unharmed. Anyway, the father's name was Winthrop Kellogg, and he was a psychologist who wondered what would happen if an animal was raised by humans as a human. This was in the early 1930s, so if you think about the time then, this is when, you know, the Tarzan books were all the rage, and there are also several real-life accounts of feral children who'd been raised by animals, and Mm -hmm. so Kellogg was inspired by these stories, and he wanted to test the opposite case. Like, if an animal was raised as a human, would it eventually act like a human, too? Oh, so it's like a bizarro jungle book or like the reverse of a Mowgli situation. Yeah, so to that end, Kellogg brought home a seven-month-old female chimpanzee named Gua. And he and his wife, who must have been this extremely patient woman, started raising the chimp alongside their 10-month-old son, Donald. And the Kelloggs treated their two kids exactly the same. Donald and Gua were allowed to play together. They ate together. They also took part in regular tests to track their development. For example, there was this one cookie test where the Kelloggs hung a cookie from a string in the middle of the room. And then they timed how long it took the boy and the chimp to reach it. Okay, so so who won? I mean, he was pitting a chimp against a baby, so the chimp mopped the floor (laughs) with him. Not surprisingly, it was no contest. In fact, Guan typically outperformed Donald on just about all the tests they took, except some of the ones that involved language acquisition. So I I know this is supposed to be like a non-upsetting study, but constantly losing to a chimp couldn't have been good for a kid's self-esteem, right? (laughs) Probably not. But, you know, one downside did become clear about nine months into the experiment, and and that was that baby Donald's own language skills were not as far along as they should have been. And, And looking back on this, that's probably not such a big surprise. But, 
You know, while he sometimes did better than Gua on their language-based test, it really wasn't by much. And so it started to look like rather than Donald having a humanizing effect on Gua, he was actually starting to adapt some to her way instead. And the deciding moment came one day when Donald let his parents know how hungry he was by imitating the barking sounds that Gua was making whenever she wanted food. (laughs) So when the Kelloggs heard the food bark coming from their human son, they decided then it was time to pull the plug on the experiment. But I like that it took that much to get them to realize maybe it wasn't a great idea. (laughs) Yeah, that seems like a smart move. But strangely enough, the Kelloggs weren't the only scientist parents to use their own kids as test subjects. So I was reading about this other psychologist from the 1930s named uh, Clarence Luba. And he used his own kids to determine if people learn to laugh when tickled or if it's an innate response. I mean, this sounds more pleasant than being pitted against a chimp. But, I mean, if you're going to use your own kids as test subjects, at least don't be creepy about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on your definition of creepy because Luba decided that he shouldn't laugh or show a happy expression while he was tickling his kids because that might ruin the experiment. So, uh you know, the, the idea is that they might mimic his behavior or use it to infer the proper response is to laugh when tickled. So just to prevent that, Luba actually banned all unauthorized tickling in his household, <laughs> and he instituted these clinical daily tickling sessions instead. And during these designated tickling times, uh, Luba would hide his facial expressions behind a mask and then joylessly tickle his son. Oh, I take it back, man. This is the creepiest thing I've ever heard. I mean, so, something I know, about these so highly <laughs> ordered tickling sessions, that's just, I don't know, man. It's just like deeply unnerving. Yeah, and Luba even took this measured approach to how he tickled his son. Like, first he started with a light tickle, and then he'd like tickle more enthusiastically, and, and he always did the same order. Like he, um, I think he started under the armpits and then went to the ribs and then chin, neck, knees, feet, and uh. He kept this up for a full seven months. And then after that, he repeated the experiment for another seven months with his daughter when she was born. This is just, I don't want to hear about this one anymore. I, I, I guess I am curious, though. So what were Luba's results? Well, in both cases, as you might guess, he found that his kids spontaneously laughed when tickled, even though they'd never been shown that behavior before. So it, it would seem that laughing when tickled really is an innate response, and it only took weirding out a couple of his own toddlers to figure that out. Well, I guess it's worth it in the name of science, except mm-hmm. not at all. That is so <laughs> creepy. All right, well, since we're getting into this kind of psychological territory, I have to mention a series of studies carried out by Dr. Ewan Cameron, and these were in the 1950s and 60s. Cameron was convinced that the brain could be reprogrammed by imposing new thought patterns on it. And and his hope was that the method could be used to help patients with schizophrenia achieve a more clear and, and maybe positive way of thinking. So the way it was supposed to work was that the patients would wear a pair of headphones, and then they would listen to these audio messages that were played over and over, sometimes for days or or even weeks at a time. And this was something Cameron called psychic driving, because the idea was that repeated messages would be driven gradually into the patient's psyche. And the press gave the method a, a different name, though. They actually called it beneficial brainwashing. Which, I mean, I guess sounds like good branding at least. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of an oxymoron of a name, but it didn't deter Cameron. So for over a decade, he tested his method on hundreds of unwitting patients, many of whom didn't even have schizophrenia. In fact, even people with minor ailments would sometimes check into the clinic where Cameron worked, and before they knew it, they were drugged, strapped to a bed, and forced to listen to loop recordings of these aspirational messages. I mean, it's actually crazy to think about some of these things. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. So what kind of messages were they uh, made to listen to? 
Well, they were mostly your typical positive reinforcement kind of stuff. You know, like they would say things like, people like you and need you and and you have confidence in yourself. It sounds a little bit Stuart Smalley-ish. Stuart Smalley-ish. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> but one time though, Cameron put his patients into a drug-induced sleep and then made them listen to the message that said, when you see a piece of paper, you want to pick it up. That's all it said. Then once all the patients had woken up, Cameron drove them one by one to a gymnasium where a single piece of paper was waiting for them on the floor of the gym. (laughs) And according to a report Cameron later wrote about the experiment, most of the patients, without any prompting, spontaneously walked over and picked up the paper. such a dumb experience. It feels like yeah. like you should test it with like putting a piece of paper and a puppy in a box. You know? Right, like, right, right. That's a good I one. Mean, you should be a scientist, Mango. <laughs> well, I basically am. But uh, it, it doesn't sound like Cameron also had like the full consent of his patients. I, no. I mean, did his operations get shut down quickly? Like once people caught on to what was happening? Well, you would think so. But actually, when the CIA found out what Cameron had been up to, it actually started funding his experiments in secret. And this move ultimately backfired, though. There was a group of Cameron's former patients that decided to sue the CIA, actually, for supporting his work. And the CIA eventually settled the matter out of court, and Cameron was forced to concede that his brainwashing experiments, as as he called it, had been, what did he say? He said, a 10-year trip down the wrong road. I guess that's one way to put it. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's putting it lightly. But Cameron's story actually reminds me of another psychologist who tried to change the thought patterns with weird repeated messages. And it didn't go as planned as you might have guessed. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. But first, we got to take another quick break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Thank you. 
Okay, Mango, let's hear it. What's the strange subliminal science project that you wanted to tell us about? Sure. So I, I'm actually going to set the mood for this one. So the year is 1942. You're asleep in a cabin at a summer camp in upstate New York. On all sides of you are other teenage boys also sleeping. And just a few feet away, there's a man standing alone in the darkness. He speaks out loud to his unconscious audience. Again and again, he mechanically recites the same one phrase. My fingernails taste terribly bitter. My fingernails taste terribly bitter. Oh, Mango, I just, you got to stop with these. You found these weird experiments. Are you sure this is a science story and not just a horror story? You're creeping me out today. I know. From from what I can tell, you really was in the name of the science. Uh, this guy's name was um, Dr. Lawrence Leshen. And that night in the cabin, he was actually conducting this sleep learning experiment. So all of the boys had actually been diagnosed with uh, chronic nail biting, and the hope was that they could be cured by, you know, these nocturnal messaging. You know, I'm trying to think about this. So you said this was in the 40s, and so I'm trying to think of how he would have delivered these messages. So so did Leshen have to, like, creep over them and repeat this phrase, you know, all night long to them? That just seems so <laughs> weird. I mean, he... he he t- I mean, it's not like he could have used a phonograph or something like that, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it adds to the story. But Leshen actually did start the study using a recorded message, and uh, he played it like 300 times a night for the kids. Wow. But he had to take the task over himself when his phonograph broke, and uh, it actually broke down five weeks into his experiment. Five weeks? How long was this study supposed to last? <laughs> the whole summer, apparently. Like, can you actually imagine these boys coming back to school on the first day and and uh, and they have to answer these questions for the classmates about how they spent their summers? And, and you know, <laughs> other kids would be like, oh, I went to Hawaii or, you know, I went to my grandparents. And they're like, I spent eight weeks in a cabin with some weirdo telling me how bad my fingernails taste. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So so I, I do have to know. I mean, that sounds terrible. But was the experiment a success? Like, did the kids stop biting their nails? Kind of. I mean, at the end of the summer, Leshen determined that 40% of the boys had been cured, which made it seem like his sleep learning techniques had some real merit. But unfortunately, other researchers looked into it and they tested his method. And, you know, one study in 1956 tracked participants' brain activity to make sure they were totally asleep before playing this anti-nail biting message. And in that case, like the unconscious messaging didn't have any effect at all. So hmm. the the whole idea was that you know, those 40% had probably kicked the habit because they were still somewhat awake during those readings. Yeah, yeah. But I guess beneficial brainwashing really does work. That's uh, that's interesting and weird. You know, one kind of weird experiment we haven't talked much about today are the government-funded kind of experiments. And, you know, we did cover some of these back in our episode on bizarre government investments, but I came across another one this week, and it's just too good not to share. And it's called Bird's Eye Bomb, and it was developed mm. during World War II by the famous psychologist and behaviorist named B.F. Skinner. Now, the idea here amounted to what was basically a pigeon-guided missile. And wouldn't you know it, the inspiration came to Skinner one day when he was watching a nearby flock of pigeons. As he later wrote of this incident, he says, Suddenly I saw them as devices with excellent vision and extraordinary maneuverability. Could they not guide a missile? So, I mean, who hasn't seen a flock of pigeons and thought that? Of course. I I am a little confused. I'm like, how exactly is this supposed to work? All right. Well, Skinner trained the pigeons to peck carefully at chosen images, like an enemy battleship, for example. And, you know, once the birds had committed these targets to memory, Skinner would put them in these custom-made missile nose cones. 
And so the makeshift cockpit included a little plastic screen, and they used mirrors for this. And then there would be an image of the missile's flight path that could be projected onto it. So by pecking at the screen, the pigeons were able to alter the coordinates. And, and basically by doing this, they would steer it toward a specific target. I mean, that's that's both ingenious and insane. And, you know, I, this idea of like kamikaze pigeons sounds <laughs> so ridiculous, but... I mean, is there any way it could really work? So surprisingly, yes. I mean, preliminary tests proved the pigeons were top-notch pilots, and plenty of scientists endorsed the project in light of those early results. Oh, wow. But in the end, the military just couldn't stomach the thought of funding such a silly-sounding project. So (laughs) they cut Skinner's funding completely in October of 1944, and which is a shame because Top Gun could have been a totally different movie if you think about it. (laughs) I know, the animated Disney movie Top Gun would have been great. (laughs) Okay, so... You know, you sneaked in another animal-based study, and so I'm going to do the same and tell you about this fateful experiment that sent the first humble tardigrade to space. All right. I feel like I've seen tardigrades in the news or reported on a, a lot in, in recent years, but remind me again what that is because it, it rings a bell as an animal, but it also just sounds like something that might be from like Doctor Who or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tardigrades are these uh, microscopic eight-legged potato-looking things. They look like little monster potatoes. Uh, Sometimes they're called water bears or moss piglets. (laughs) And you can actually find them in just about every habitat on Earth. You can find them on, like, mountaintops, uh, rainforests, the bottom of lakes, even even in Antarctica, which is pretty incredible. But, uh, you know, speaking of Doctor Who, because you mentioned it, the the team behind the study must have been fans because they actually named their experiment Tardigrades in Space or TARDIS. Actually, I just pulled up a picture, and they do look both cute and freaky. And it's crazy that they're only like a millimeter big. But so you said we shot these things into space for some reason? Yeah, a a team of European researchers wanted to test just how resilient these tardigrades really are. Because you can probably tell from that list of habitats that, you know, they're hardy creatures. And they can survive temperatures as low as negative 328 degrees Fahrenheit or as high as 300 degrees Fahrenheit. They can also stand up to pressures as powerful as 6,000 times that of the Earth's atmosphere. And they can even survive doses of radiation that are thousands of times stronger than it would take to kill a human. So clearly they're super tough creatures. And it actually turns out they're so tough, they can even survive exposure to the vacuum of outer space. Wow. So so researchers just flew a bunch of these. What you what you call them? I like the name, uh, moss piglets. I think that was my favorite. <laughs> so, so they flew these things into space and just like chucked them out the airlock or what? Yeah, I mean, the the approach was a little more nuanced than that. So first they dehydrated the tardigrades, and, uh, you know, that makes them enter this state of hibernation where all their metabolic activity drops to about 0.01% of normal levels. And then once they're in this protective state, the researchers exposed one group of water bears to the vacuum of space and another to both the vacuum of space and this immense radiation from the sun. And after a full 10 days of this, right, 10 days, the tardigrades were brought back to Earth and rehydrated. And amazingly, 68% of the tardigrades exposed only to outer space survived. And even among the ones who were also exposed to solar radiation, a handful were successfully revived. And the craziest part, some of these even went on to produce healthy offspring. So those things are pretty much unstoppable. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I actually have my own weird space experiment to share. And, and I happen to think it blows yours away, Mango. I just wanted to give oh, you a yeah. heads up on this. And this, <laughs> this comes from 1965 when a two-man crew took the Gemini 3 on a several trips around the Earth's orbit. 
And one of the astronauts on that mission, John Young, was apparently not a fan of the you know, kind of the standard food from a tube that NASA was typically providing them. Because once the pair reached orbit, Young revealed that he had smuggled aboard a contraband corned beef sandwich into his back pocket. <laughs> I mean, I love the story. I know the story, but... I'm not really sure you can call it an experiment. I mean, it sounds more like a great anecdote about a hungry astronaut. I don't know, Mango. Actually, let, let me let, help me read this transcript. I've got this for you. I want you to help me out here, and you, you'll see what I mean by this. So I'm going to be John Young, and you're going to be Gus Grissom, the co-pilot. Are you, you ready to do this? All right. <laughs> yeah, I've got the script here. Go, go for it. It's your line first. <clears throat> what is it? A corned beef sandwich. Where did that come from? I brought it with me. Let's see how it tastes. Smells, doesn't it? <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's the whole the whole incident lasted like 30 seconds, including the you time. You handed me this script. That's I it. I know, I know. But it was worth it because, you know, that was 30 seconds, and that included the time it took to nibble the sandwich before Young tucked it back into his flight suit. But see, they wanted to see what it tasted like. That's the experiment. Does a corned beef sandwich taste and smell the same in space as it does on Earth? <laughs> And Young suffered for his science, too. After the mission, he was sternly chastised by his superiors at NASA, though I I guess they didn't come down on him too hard because he was still permitted to land on the moon as part of the Apollo 16 mission. Well, I I am glad that an illicit sandwich incident didn't cost him his career. Well, all right. Well, I can tell from the smoke coming out of Tristan's potato that we're running short on time. I do have a (laughs) few more weird experiments I wanted to cover, though. Well, thankfully, that's exactly what the fact offs for. All right, why don't we start with an experiment by the Swedish playwright August Strindberg. Now, Strindberg wasn't a scientist, but he certainly had some ideas. And one of those was his belief that plants had nervous systems. And for some reason, botanists had just overlooked it. Anyway, he was determined to show everyone that plants could feel things. So during his walks around town, he would take out some morphine and, you know, the way we all carry morphine, I guess, in our back pockets. <laughs> and then he would inject whatever he saw to see how it would react. And one day he was arrested for injecting an apple with the drug. But when he explained he was just trying to get the apple high in the name of science, the officer figured he was just a sweet lunatic and not someone trying to go around poisoning the city and let him go. (laughs) So, you know, I'd always heard that thing about how a soul weighs 21 grams, which is odd. Like, why does it have to be in the metric system? We live in America. That's the only thing odd about it, right? (laughs) It should be like three-fourths of an ounce. But uh, anyway, I I was curious where the idea came from. And apparently it goes back to 1907 to this Massachusetts doctor, this guy named Duncan McDougall. And so this actually comes from Discover Magazine. But to figure it out, McDougall made this bed fitted with scales. And then he convinced a bunch of terminally ill patients, and this is pretty crazy, that they should make it their literal deathbed. And then he was actually pretty meticulous about it. So this is from the magazine. Quote, he recorded not only each patient's exact time of death, but also his or her total time on the bed, as well as any changes in weight that occurred around the moment of expiration. He even factored losses of bodily fluids like sweat and urine and gases like oxygen and nitrogen into his calculations. Of course, you know the conclusion, right? Like, after the soul escaped the body, the people weighed 21 grams less. Okay, I've got one about a guy named Henning Brand, and he really wanted to get wealthy, and he believed he had a Scrooge McDuck way to kind of get there, and that was through pee. Now, in 1669, the German alchemist apparently had stocked about 1,500 gallons worth of urine in his basement. That is just so weird. But and gross. He was convinced he could spin it into gold. Of course, he couldn't, but 
His experiments did lead to one interesting discovery. After boiling one sample, he noticed a bit of unusual glowing liquid, which is how he ended up discovering phosphorus. Oh, that's amazing. So you'll be happy to know that I didn't just look up what turkeys are attracted to. I also looked into chicken preferences. And uh, (laughs) according to one study, chickens don't like ugly people. And basically, the scientist, Dr. Stefano Girlanda at the Zoology Institution of Stockholm University, he was trying to understand whether physical attraction is inherited due to genes or learned. So he tested it the way any of us would. He took some, I guess, libidinous chickens. And and these birds were just hot to trot or what? Yeah, they they were definitely uh, quote excited and and uh, he showed them photos of people to see which ones they wanted to mate with and and which ones they'd peck. So Girlanda took photos of thirty five males and females and these are humans and they mashed them into these digital pics of these very average looking people. And male birds mostly pecked photos of women. Hens mostly pecked photos of men. And then Girlanda gave them this other task, right? He he created another set of more faces. And this time he asked college students to rate the faces on attractiveness. So 98% of the time, the chickens actually pecked the more attractive face. Oh, wow. That's 98%. That's pretty interesting. All right, yeah. well, here's a story I learned from Cracked. And it asked the important question, what happens when you get leeches drunk? You know, we've all wondered this. <laughs> the idea was that you can actually improve the rate that leeches suck blood if you can just get them a little bit loose beforehand. So researchers from Norway dipped a bunch of leeches in Guinness and also smeared some in garlic and others in sour cream. <laughs> Such a weird experiment. And I'm guessing it wasn't just the leeches drinking during this experiment. So what happened? Well, the drunk leeches are not good at sucking blood. I don't know why this would come as a surprise <laughs> to anybody. They just kind of wiggled and couldn't focus. They fell off the arms, which is just, I, I wish I had a video of this experiment because it just yeah. sounds so weird. The sour cream leeches fared better with slightly better sucking abilities. And the garlic-coated leeches, like any good vampire, garlic was their kryptonite. They actually died. That's pretty amazing. And I'm actually glad we started with rats on cocaine and ended with leeches on a bender because (laughs) science is great. And uh, drunken science might even be better. But I'm going to give you today's uh, today's trophy. Uh, Well, thank you. It's an honor. Now, I'm sure there are so many great experiments. There were many we couldn't include that we had looked into. But uh, we'd love to hear from you if there are ones that you guys want us to hear about. Feel free to email us parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. You can also call us on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. Or as always, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we we forget Jason? Jason who? This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, 
fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.